guys. Welcome back to the Beck and Call podcast. I'm your host, Merritt Beck. As a longtime fashion blogger, I've loved connecting with my audience over the years on all things life, work, love, and everything in between. And I wanted to bring that to life on this podcast. You can consider the Beck and Call podcast a weekly catch up with your internet bestie, where I share personal life updates, recent recs and reviews, and discuss relevant, interesting topics for women in their 20s, 30s, and beyond. I am so glad you're here. So let's get into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This week's episode is something that I am so excited about. I interviewed Amanda E. White last week to talk about her book, Not Drinking Tonight. We dive into the various health and mental health impacts that alcohol has on us, whether it be one drink or a number of drinks. We discuss redefining and reevaluating one's relationship with alcohol, which you guys know I've been up to this last year. I've just sort of been on a journey myself (laughs) trying to drink a little bit less. I'm still on the not drinking part of my journey. I did dry January. I still haven't had anything to drink. So we definitely dive into that. We talk about how to approach different social situations like going on dates and going to celebrations like weddings and all of that stuff when you're sober or sober curious. And there's just a ton of great information in this episode. So I hope you'll listen to it. If you enjoy it, please consider sharing it with a friend. This is definitely a great shareable episode especially with friends that have done dry January or anyone in your life that may be sober curious or thinking about ways they can change their own drinking habits. So definitely consider sharing the podcast. But before we get into it with Amanda, I am, of course, going to be sharing what I've been up to this last week and some recs and reviews. So let's get into that. I'm going to be honest, this week was a little unproductive and uneventful. I didn't have really any social plans this week. I did hang out with some friends last weekend. I had dinner at Park House with my friend Taylor Friday, which was great. And then on Sunday, I had brunch with my friend Katie, who I hadn't seen in a while. And so it was great to catch up with both of them. But other than that, I've just been kind of hanging out and working. And truth be told, I was very unproductive working at at least at the beginning of the week. And part of that is because of Poshmark. (laughs) I'm going to blame Poshmark for this because I've mentioned this before. If I don't have long stretches at the computer, if it's interrupted with something, whether that be lunch or packing up Poshmark boxes or what have you, anything else that takes me away from dedicated time with the computer, I have such a hard time refocusing. And so Monday was kind of a wash outside of getting the Poshmark stuff packaged up and all of that. Also, we had such nice weather for a few days and I just wanted to be outside as much as possible. And I went on a lot of walks. And so I kind of ended the day early. I sent Liza home early (laughs) for a few days so I could get out there and enjoy it before it got dark. But um, other than that, not a lot has happened this week. Although because of the nice weather and the forecast acted like it was not going to get cold again. Of course, here I am sitting bundled up in a blanket and sweater while I'm recording because it is in the 40s and 50s today. But it wasn't supposed to be. The forecast as of last weekend for the rest of the week was like high 70s, even 80s. We did we did hit like 86 or something this week, which is just mad. That's insane for February. But I am so ready for spring. And because the forecast looked like it was going to be warm, I spent a lot of my Sunday reorganizing my closet. I feel like I've been talking about reorganizing almost every episode this year. <laughs> I just... This time of year is when I like to really clean things out, get things where they should be. I feel like it's just the perfect time. Spring cleaning, literally what it's for. 
And so that's what I did on Sunday. And now my closet reflects what I'm hoping the weather will be, which is warmer weather. And even though I probably did it a little too early, I am glad I did it because it allowed me to weed out even more items to donate and sell for Poshmark. I always forget about stuff when it's all kind of squished together or especially over the seasons when they're kind of hidden away. Pull things out and you're like, well, why do I still have this? I have not worn it in two years or this has stains. I've got to throw it out. Like, why is this even hanging here and wasting a hanger, (laughs) precious hangers? So anyway, I feel good about that. I'm totally done doing that. So I should that should be it for my organizational updates for a while, which many of you are probably very happy about. My personal updates may be short this week, but my recs and reviews are not. I've got some good ones for you. So let's get into that. So this week I finished two audiobooks. One is called The Quarry Girls by Jess Laurie or Lowry. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I really loved it. It's a thriller and it's about young girls in a small town that start to go missing. And it's told from the perspective of two different women. One perspective is of one of the young women who is taken and the other perspective is of a young young girl in town just observing what's going on and like trying to figure out who's to blame and being worried about her friends and all of that. And the ending was somewhat predictable, like you'll probably figure it out as you read it. But because it has some solid twists in there, it really didn't bother me. I really found this a page turner, even though I was listening to it on audiobook and I liked the narrator. So definitely a good one to listen to if you like an audiobook and if you love a thriller, definitely give this one a try. I think it was about 10 hours, but it felt like a lot shorter than that. Like I was breezing through it. It's a it's a good one. And then the other audiobook that I listened to this week is called The Kind Worth Killing and it's by Peter Swanson. And this one I enjoyed, but it was kind of interesting how it was how the story was told and the various perspectives that were included in this because While the timeline is pretty straightforward and kind of follows a straight chronological line, once you get to the end of a section, it goes to a different perspective and just starts off there. It doesn't really go back and explain from that person's perspective what happened. Some parts do, but some parts don't. And so you lose some context in those transitions, I guess. And so it sometimes feels a little all over the place. And like there were several moments in the book where I thought I knew what was going to happen and then it totally changed course and then kept going in a different direction, which I guess you could call a twist, but it doesn't feel like a twist. It just feels like a change in direction. (laughs) It just it just keeps going. Um, So anyway, I enjoyed it. I don't love the voices of the narrators of this audiobook. It might be better if you read it versus listen to it. But if you like a thriller or kind of a whodunit, a mystery, if you will, you would like this book. Last Saturday, I watched several movies because I had nothing going on and it just seemed like the perfect day to just cozy up with my dog and watch a lot of movies. So (laughs) I watched two rom-coms and a thriller. I watched a movie called Somebody That I Used to Know, which stars Alison Brie and Jay Ellis. And Allison plays a woman who visits her small hometown after some unfortunate news at work. And her first night home, she bumps into her old boyfriend, her ex, and they hang out all night. It's not romantic. But of course, at the end of the evening, she kisses him and he stops it, but without really an explanation. And so they leave. And of course, she finds out that he is engaged to be married. 
And this is when I start hating the movie because Alison Brie's character continues to pursue him actively. She gets conniving and manipulative and like thinks she's smarter than everybody else and is trying to like trick him back into her heart. And I just found her so unlikable in this role. She is so selfish. (laughs) I just really hated it. I do not recommend this movie. I just couldn't get over how self-centered she was the whole time and found her extremely annoying. And yeah, so I would not recommend this if you're looking for a good rom-com. But one rom-com I actually did love is called About Fate, and it stars Emma Roberts and Thomas Mann. And she plays a woman who just gets broken up with and like needs a last minute date to her sister's wedding. And he plays a guy who proposed to his girlfriend, but she like she wants to get engaged, but basically says no to the proposal because of where they get proposed or where she gets proposed to, which is at a Bennigan's. And Emma's character and and Thomas's character bump into each other and meet at Bennigan's when they're both leaving the restaurant. And of course, you know, he ends up being her date. See where this is going. But I just it's cheesy. It's quirky. It's cute. Obviously, the writing isn't the best thing I've ever watched, but I thought they had cute chemistry and it was a it was just a cute rom-com. It was a feel good movie for sure. Definitely give About Fate a shot if you are in the market for a cute new rom-com. And then another movie I watched, which is the thriller I was talking about, is Sharper on Apple TV. It just came out and it stars Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan, Brianna Middleton and Justice Smith. And this movie is basically one long con. It's about con artists. And I don't want to share any more than that because it'll give it away. There's some pretty good twists and turns in this. It's not the best thriller I've ever watched, but I definitely it definitely kept me on the edge of my seat. It was something that I had to watch until the very end. Um, There were details that I thought were unnecessary and I felt like it didn't need to be as long as it was, but I did love the ending. The ending was very satisfying. And yeah, I think it's a decent thriller. So check out Sharper on Apple TV. Now on to a couple of TV wrecks. Now y'all are going to laugh at me, but I'm, I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel here on what I haven't seen yet. I feel like I've tried just about every TV show that exists. If I haven't watched it, it's because I didn't like the first episode. But the show that <laughs> I started last weekend that I'm kind of addicted to, but it's terrible, is called La Brea. It is on Peacock. It's on NBC. And there are going to be three seasons. There are only two available right now, but the third season is going to be the final one. I honestly don't know how it's made it to three seasons. That's how bad the writing is. But I'm I'm so compelled by the plot. It's basically about a massive sinkhole that opens up in the middle of Los Angeles where obviously a bunch of buildings and people fall into and they're presumed dead because the sinkhole seems to never end. You just look down and it keeps going. It turns out the people that fell into the sinkhole are taken back in time to 10,000 BC. And basically once they're there, they try to figure out how to get home while also trying to survive the elements and the various animals that exist back then think saber-toothed tigers woolly mammoths like it's it's kind of ridiculous but it's just so up my alley even though it's so terrible like the fantasy element there's like obviously a little sci-fi in there and then also the time period thing like the time travel aspect we've seen a lot and it's been done well in tv shows and movies 
And so that wasn't that surprising to me. It's more the time period I feel that makes this so unique. You don't see many TV shows where they take you back that far in time. Like we have Jurassic Park movies that take you back to like prehistory with dinosaurs or whatever. And then that's pretty much all we have. We don't have like early BCs. (laughs) I just I found that very compelling and interesting. And I feel like more TV shows should tap into that theme, but just do it better. I mean, La Brea is not anything to write home about, but if you're at all interested in like sci-fi, time travel, and just, I don't know, prehistoric storylines, I don't know even how to explain this show, but I'm fully entertained every time I watch it. And I honestly can't wait for season three. And then I've got to just say one more thing. Grey's Anatomy is back. And this last episode that aired last week was Meredith's final episode on the show. It is the end of an era. I have watched this show since college. I started watching it when I was dating my college boyfriend and we would just like lay on my couch and watch binge watch it. And I became obsessed with the show. I have watched it ever since. I know there have been bad seasons. It's been on the air for like 20 years now. I love it. I love the soundtracks. I love the characters, even though they've like gotten rid of all of the main characters now, pretty much, except for Miranda Bailey and Richard Weber. Everybody else is new. I still love the new characters. I feel like the writers have done such a great job over the years weaving in these people and coming up with new medical scenarios. I think that's what makes these medical shows so great is there literally is a never ending good storyline because medicine is always evolving Healthcare is always evolving. You know, I just, I love that show so much. It will be very interesting to see how it goes without her. Although I will say the last couple seasons, her character hasn't totally been necessary on the show. So I definitely think it can continue. But I will say the final episode with her was pretty lackluster. But I know she mentioned on Instagram that she'd be making more appearances on the show. This would just be her final episode as like a starring role. So she'll probably do some guest episodes here and there. She's just saying goodbye to being part of the main cast. But I found the episode kind of boring. Like every time they've waved goodbye to other people, it's this big elaborate thing. And they didn't do that for her. So maybe they're mad she's leaving. I don't know, but I'm still going to watch it. What can I say? I just love it. Now let's hear a word from this week's sponsor. lifestyle, I bet a lot of people believe that means taking things away that are quote unquote bad for us. But what it really means is giving yourself the best things for you, whether that be feeding yourself more nutritious whole foods or establishing a fresh, fun workout routine. Living a healthy lifestyle does not need to feel restrictive. If you're looking for easy ways to improve your overall health and nutrition, look no further than giving yourself AG1 from Athletic Greens. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. AG1 costs less than $3 a day, and it's cheaper than getting all of those supplements yourself. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, immune system, nervous system, your energy, focus, recovery, basically everything. (laughs) I love taking my AG1 first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. I just mix one scoop with eight ounces of chilled water, and it's my favorite daily habit with the biggest benefits. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash beck and call. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash beck and call to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, guys, I'm so excited to introduce you to this week's guest, Amanda E. White. She is a therapist. She's the author of the book, Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. And she also runs the Instagram account, Therapy for Women. I'm so excited to have you on the Beck and Call podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Merritt. I'm excited to chat with you. So for those listening, can you share a little bit more about yourself, your background and how you came to the decision to live a sober lifestyle and also pursue this as a career and be talking about it and write a book about it for all of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I stopped drinking, let's see, um, about eight and a half years ago. I did not think when I stopped drinking that that would be my life or anything like that. I knew I wanted to be a therapist and I struggled with an eating disorder for most of my life growing up. And that really just kind of led to problematic drinking for sure. And I would kind of interchange one and the other. And I I definitely in college, I also kind of got into some other substances and things like that. And I knew that that was problematic, but it wasn't until I was actually in grad school And I wanted to work with people with addiction. And I was actually in an internship that I really realized that I also had a problem with alcohol. And thankfully, I had a really great therapist who helped me work through all of those things. So yeah, that was kind of how it all came to be. I wanted to be a therapist. I knew that if I was drinking the way I was, I wouldn't be able to do that. And when I started my own practice about five years ago, I, you know, I started an Instagram account for marketing because I really don't like going to uh, in-person networking events. So my solution to marketing myself was through social media. And I really wanted to create a place because there's amazing, you know, social media accounts that just focus on sobriety. And I really wanted to be able to be a place where I can talk about sobriety, but I can talk about other things too, and maybe introduce the idea of someone questioning their relationship, even if they're not sober or super interested in sobriety. And that's kind of where my account lies, because I really believe at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff under drinking behavior is all the same between us. And I think a lot of us struggle with boundaries and emotions and communication skills and things like that. And I really believe we all kind of have our stuff, but what's under it is very human. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons your book spoke to me was that it wasn't just going to like AA, for example, like yeah. that's very specific. It's very, I would say hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> so I would probably yeah. describe it. And as somebody who's just sober curious, AA isn't really the right match for someone like me. Yeah. As somebody who's curious about maybe moderating my drinking or just reevaluating my relationship with alcohol, I really appreciated your book. And I I just don't feel like there are a ton of resources out there for that. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. 
But I remember reading in your book that alcohol consumption went up 41% in women during the pandemic. Can you share any other basic stats on how much the average American drinks and if that number is continuing to rise or if it's declining? Like what's the current trend? Yeah, yeah. So it's a little hard to measure with the current statistics because the pandemic wasn't just right. Like there isn't an official start or end to the pandemic with that statistic, which is interesting. But especially when people were in lockdown, I mean, it has gone down since like the peak of COVID. I think a lot of people were struggling with just being home and not having something to do. Women, especially. I mean, what I can also tell you is the drinking trend in women has been rising very steadily over the last 10 years. And a big part of why they think that is, is that women used to kind of be an untapped market when you think about big alcohol and their branding. And they kind of realized that they weren't tapping into this market. And that is really what led to the push of, you know, if you think about like white girl rosé and mommy wine culture and um, even hard seltzer really, I think, really came about because of all the like calorie consciousness of, of more women drinking. And if you look at the branding, there's a lot more diversity in just drinks that are sold that are more marketed towards women. So that's been a very big trend that just exacerbated during the pandemic, especially with women, you know, being more primary caretakers, having to have a lot more roles being whether they have kids, things like that during the pandemic, I think really made it worse and and has continued. Yeah. And I do not have kids. I work for myself. Like I'm, I'm pretty free of responsibilities. I, I would say my life isn't super stressful, but I still drink a lot during the pandemic because I was home alone, alone yeah. for, for a while. And uh, after, I mean, getting out of the pandemic, I'm using air quotes. We're still in it, I guess. Right. <laughs> but once I was able to be out and about again, I felt like I was almost partying just as much as I was at home just because I was like, I'm free. (laughs) And last year is when I really was like, oof, I need to I need to reel it in a little bit like this is not feeling good. I'm somebody who has pretty bad hangovers and Mm -hmm. even from like a couple drinks, it just does not affect me super well. So yeah, this last year has been sort of a journey for me in moderation. And then I recently did dry January and I still haven't had a drink. And so I'm pretty happy with that and the way I'm feeling. Yeah. I'm not sure where I want it to go yet, but I'm just sort of playing around with it. But I think we all know what it's or those of us who have had a drink (laughs) know what it's like to have a bad hangover. But can you share more of the negative side effects and health impacts that come with alcohol use, whether it's binge drinking or just a couple drinks? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people really have this idea. It's a misconception then if you just drink socially or you drink, you know, a few times a week, there's no health, you know, risks at all. And even doctors still sometimes say, you know, like have a, you know, a glass of red wine. It's good for your heart. It's heart healthy or whatever. And finally, in the past six months, year, there have been studies that really say there aren't any positive impacts to alcohol at all. I mean, you could have grapes, right? And it could very easily balance out any antioxidants you get. Um, But there are consequences to even just having a couple drinks or having one drink. I mean, the biggest one that's easy to understand is uh, sleep. Even if you only have one drink, like one, you know, serving of alcohol, it can really impact your sleep and it can prevent you from getting into REM cycle sleep. And that's really what debunks kind of the idea. A lot of people think, well, 
you know, I'm going to just, I'm a daily drinker, but I have one glass of wine at the end of the day. And if you're doing that over time without a break, it can really mess up your sleep and mess up just some of your memory because you're never getting into that deeper REM cycle sleep. So that's one big thing. Yeah. The sleep was actually something that I noticed right off the bat when I was doing dry January, because I, (laughs) this is somebody that people in their thirties and older might uh, understand, but I have now started having to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, which (laughs) used to be a problem. (laughs) But when I would get up at like three in the morning, I couldn't go back to sleep. I was, and since not drinking, I haven't had that issue. Uh, I'll occasionally wake up a little too early before my alarm and not be able to go back to sleep. But in terms of like getting up to go to the bathroom at like 2 a.m., I'm able to go back to sleep when I couldn't before. And I definitely blame that on the sugar and alcohol. And I'm sure there's other ingredients that are messing with me there, but I have yeah. had good sleep since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot of times when that happens, because a lot of people also use sleep or not sleep. They use alcohol, right? As like a sedative. It helps them wind down. It helps them go to sleep at night. And typically when something like that happens, it's it's not that alcohol actually helps you fall asleep. It just sedates you. So the problem is, is if you drink and you use it to help you go to sleep, you often wake up when the alcohol has worn off and then you actually didn't really sleep. You just kind of were sedated. So that's why you can't go back to sleep because you weren't actually in a deep level of sleep. You just the alcohol wore off. Right. So in addition to sleep and memory and that, yeah. what else, what else does it do to your body and what other effects are there on your mental health from alcohol use? Yeah. So mental health, I would also say is one of the biggest ones too, is what people don't understand is that yes, alcohol is a depressant, right? But when you use alcohol as a depressant, your body always wants to be in homeostasis. Your brain wants to be in homeostasis. So your body reacts to a depressant by actually producing anxiety hormones, like your cortisol increases, things like that, because it needs to be balanced. The problem is, is then alcohol leaves your system and your anxiety hormones don't get the memo as quickly. So that's really what causes like the term anxiety that people talk about. Um, The next day when you feel more anxious after you drank, it's because you have additional anxiety hormones going on in your brain and your body after the alcohol leaves your system. So if you are prone to anxiety, alcohol temporarily makes you feel better. It may help you feel less anxious, but the next day it, it makes it more difficult, you know? So it's like a biological thing that happens, but also over time, if you're using alcohol, you know, to cope with being stressed, I often say that alcohol has this, the blessing and the curse of alcohol is that it allows us to live a life that doesn't work for us. Like you can get away with not learning how to set boundaries, tend to your emotions, have hard conversations, stay in a job that maybe really isn't sustainable because you can use alcohol to fill in those gaps. It numbs you. It numbs you. Exactly. But over time, right? Like you're staying in, you're not using coping skills. You're not actually tending to your emotions because you're just using alcohol. Now, for those who are unsure whether their alcohol use is problematic, I feel like there are obviously some major red flags that we all are probably aware of, but what are some other ones that you may not necessarily come up with on your own? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anxiety, like anxiety, depression, how your mental health is, alcohol is going to only exacerbate those symptoms and make it more difficult for you. I think that 
you have to look at kind of major areas of your life, like your social life. How does it impact your relationship with friends? How does it impact your relationship with family? How does it impact your relationship with your job? Are you hung over all the time? And you're, you know, maybe you're not at risk for being fired or anything like that, <clears throat> but you're not showing up and doing your best work because you're not totally present when you're going to work. How is it impacting? Even I think it's important to look at sometimes when people get caught in an intense habit of drinking, they avoid going to the doctor, they avoid going to the dentist, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but these little things over time can really add up. But I also really love to kind of flip the question on its head. And rather than because people can get very into, is my alcohol use bad enough? And I'm more of a proponent of looking at like, is alcohol helping me? Is alcohol enough of a positive thing in my life that it's worth continuing versus is it so bad that I have to stop? Right. So weighing the pros and cons as opposed to just looking for the cons. Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And looking at like, what, what is drinking costing me? Like not just obviously drinking costs us like money, but is it costing you time? Is it costing you your health? Is it costing you, you know, sleep, things like that. And then I also think it's really important to, I mean, alcohol does have benefits. There's a reason that people drink and thinking about what is it doing for your life? What are the positive things? And then you can look and say, okay, is alcohol worth the costs, you know, based on the payoffs that I'm getting? And sometimes for some people, it might be. Sometimes for some people, it might not. But then that gives you a framework to kind of choose from a more powerful place when to drink, when not to drink, when is it worth it for you? When is maybe it not worth it for you? So yes, all of that. I'm a bit of a social chameleon, which plays into my drinking. I definitely... Who, except for at the beginning of the pandemic, drinks at home. Like I can have alcohol in my house and not even look at it. Like I yeah. get home unless I'm like hosting a party or something. But I tend to match people's energy when I'm with them. Mm-hmm. So if they're wanting to go out and have a wild night, I'm I'm happy to do that. If they're not drinking, I'm also happy to not drink. So I can kind of play what role I need to play. That's just kind of who I am. Mm-hmm. What would your suggestion be for someone like that to moderate themselves? Because I had such an issue with this a little earlier than this time last year. I was going out with a guy who was drinking a lot more than me and I was keeping, I was trying to keep up with him and it ended up just being a bad situation for me. I was hungover all the time. And that was when I was like, oh shit, I need to, (laughs) I need to pull back. (laughs) So what would, what would your suggestion be in a situation like that? Yeah. I love that question too, Merritt, because I think it's really common. I think a lot of us, you know, even if we're not social chameleons really want to match someone's energy and there is a lot of social pressure sometimes when you're going out and people are like, we're going to drink a lot tonight, or we're going to go get drunk, or we're going to do shots or whatever. So I think one place to start would be maybe before you went out, deciding how much you actually want to drink that night, like regardless of what everyone else is drinking, kind of create your own limit and your own idea of that. I will say it's really hard to moderate once you're past the point of like actually being drunk. So I do like to tell people that because sometimes when I work with people, they're like, I want to moderate. I want to get drunk, but I don't want to black out. And that's just, you're not home when you're drunk, you know, like you're not present anymore. So that's not really possible, but you can think about how many drinks is the right amount for you. I think you can also look at like pacing your drinking when you're going out, making sure you're eating enough beforehand. 
But I think like independent of before you hang out with those people, deciding for yourself how much you would like to drink that night. I appreciate you saying that because that was sort of my method last year. Yeah. When I was kind of dabbling in this and I, I would, I decided on two. That was mm-hmm. my best. Yeah. And that did work for me. It doesn't always, depending on what I'm drinking, like if yeah. I old fashioned and it's not just like a glass of wine, if it's a stronger drink, that doesn't always work. And that's been bit me in the ass before, but well, I think it's tricky when not every bartender, right? Like measures the same and pours the same. So it is, yeah. it is hard. <laughs> yeah. But no, I'm glad that you said that because that did work for me a lot of the time. So yeah. Kind of switching gears here, there seems to be more of a stigma about women who admit to having an alcohol problem versus men. And why do you think that is? I think there's more stigma um, a lot of times for women based on just what their roles are and based on what's going on. I think that men have been drinking much, like I was saying, back to big alcohol and who is typically the drinker. And it's always been much more socially acceptable for men to drink and for men to have, you know, a drinking problem that we kind of write off as, oh, he just drinks a lot. Where women, I think, just get more stigmatized because of women, you know, there's more stigma with being a woman in general. And it's much more likely that women are blamed, right? For if they get too drunk, it's their fault. If something happens to them, it's their fault. If they're, you know, women are expected to be the caretakers and the mom often in the family. So there's more stigma, I think, around if a woman has kids and is drinking more um, compared to dad could drink the same amount or more, right? And it's fine for him to just sit on the couch and pass out compared to mom is the one that's expected to have things together and things like that. Take care of the kids. Exactly. Right. Where dad is babysitting when he's taking care of his own child. Yeah. So, and you mentioned this about the mommy wine culture. Alcohol is obviously something people reach for when they're stressed out or as a like just a relief at the end of the day. So like a stay-at-home mom needing a glass of wine because her kids have been driving her crazy or coming off of a stressful work week and reaching for a drink to relax. But in your book, you detail how alcohol is actually doing the opposite. Can you explain and also share some alternative things people can be doing instead of reaching for a drink in those stressful situations when people need that kind of relief? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing to preface this is... It is probably easier to reach for a drink, right? Like that is why we do it. It's like an easy button and being able to just turn off our emotions, turn off our stress. So I think um, before I give, I like to say that just because I think people sometimes want the same level of sedation that comes in a very easy thing that doesn't take time. And that unfortunately isn't, you know, any of the coping skills I'm going to give are going to take time and they may not be as fun because what, but you have to think about what does your body really need in that moment? Because when you just reach for that drink, when you're stressed at the end of the work week, you're just sedating the stress. You're just kind of kicking the can down the road until the next day or the next day. And eventually you'll have to deal with those emotions or you'll keep drinking over them. So what we're talking about is actually dealing with the stress versus just sedating ourselves from the effects of it. But I think a couple of things to, you know, I'm a big believer in self-care and self-care doesn't need to look like, I think people get confused between treating yourself and self-care, which is not the same thing. And that's where 
people like there are even articles that I mean, there was a New York Times article that I think came out in 2019 where someone wrote an op-ed about like wine is my self-care. And to me, self-care is actual like it's not something that you temporarily do to feel better and then you feel worse afterwards, which is what alcohol does. So I think it looks different for everyone, but I think some of the things look like, I mean, number one, if you're in the habit, like if you're in the habit of having a drink at the end of the night, there are a lot of alcohol-free alternatives. And sometimes I like to go through with people, when does the relief come from the stress of the week? Does it come when you sit down on the couch and your kids are in bed and you pour that glass of wine and you can like take a deep breath? Or does it come after you've drank that first drink? And a lot of times people identify it happens before they've even taken a sip. It's like the ritual of doing it kind of signals to their brain to turn off. And that's good news because that means that we can substitute that for a mocktail, an alcohol-free alternative. I'm a really big believer, especially for sober, curious folks, like try out different alcohol-free wines are different. You know, there's a lot of amazing products on the market now. And you can even do that first and then see if you really need that other drink. But yeah, other things I think like, you know, nothing revolutionary here, but going for a walk, taking a bath, journaling, calling a friend, doing something to actually deal with your emotions and stress rather than just trying to numb yourself from them. For sure. And because you brought up the non-alcoholic options, I'm assuming that wouldn't be something you'd recommend for somebody who's an actual alcoholic, but that's something for sober curious people. But are you, are you somebody who enjoys like non-alcoholic wine, beer, and those like faux liquor brands? I am. I mean, I'm, I haven't drank in so long that it's funny that they didn't come out until I was like far into my sobriety. Um, so it's not something I recommend for people early in recovery. I typically recommend people have like at least a year sober. And obviously they have to be careful about, does it trigger them? You know, it's, it's funny. Cause I joke, I went to a sober bar in Denver, like last year. And, um, a lot of the alcohol-free alternatives taste so much like alcohol now that I don't like them at all. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, like I had a red wine that was like a de-alcoholized wine. I was like, this tastes terrible to me. Cause I'm so used to like good tasting drinks. So yeah, I think it depends on the person. It depends on AA has like a stance, you know, that they don't recommend them and things like that. But I, I think it depends on the person. It depends on um, their history and how far and strong their recovery is. But I do enjoy drinking, you know, especially fun mocktails and things like that, that don't mimic tequila or things like that. I, I think it's so funny. I've, I've seen, and I have a question about sober bars too. Cause I was yeah. like, book and I was like, what is a sober bar? I mean, it's an, <laughs> obvious, it's an obvious answer, I'm sure, but it's just like, do they just serve kombucha? <laughs> what, what do they serve? No, they serve all of the like alcohol free, like alternative. I mean, there's so many now. So I went to one in Denver, my husband does drink and it was funny because he liked some of the stuff more than I did because he has more of a taste for, you know, a drink that tastes like an old fashioned, right? That like the primary taste of it is bourbon or whatever. Um, but no, they make like fake bourbon. They make fake tequila. I mean, they have kombucha, they have 
alcohol-free wine. They make mocktails. Um, but yeah, they, they just have enough now that there's tons of options. <laughs> but I have to look and see what is available in Texas. I didn't, I even there's know- actually an amazing sober bar in Texas. His name is Chris Marshall. I think he's in Austin okay. and his name, his name is San, his handle on Instagram is Sans bar. I can, okay. I can tell you more about it, but he's amazing. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll probably go back to Austin over Easter. So maybe I'll check that out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I was always sort of baffled by the non-alcoholic liquor brands. And I don't know why, like there's always been non-alcoholic beer and then wine later on. And now like non-alcoholic vodka. And (laughs) and I just am sort of like, I wouldn't, I just personally wouldn't, if I'm not going to drink, I don't want to taste, I don't want to order something that tastes like it. I guess. Like, no, that's how I feel. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, some people claim to like really love the taste, I guess, of like some, you know, vodka is a weird one to me because I don't feel like anyone really likes vodka, but some people really claim to, you know, love a tequila forward drink and clearly they sell it. So it works. But um, no, I'm much more of a, you know, I love the one. I really like the ones that are that are dry and they're kind of like, you know, they're spirits, but they aren't a mock of an alcohol-free beverage. They're kind of their own thing. Okay, cool. So switching gears a little bit, mentioned early on that you kind of knew your drinking was problematic in college, but it wasn't until grad school that you were like, you kind of figured it out. I definitely was all over the place in college. I drank a lot. I went to a school that was known for partying and all of that. And basically every social activity revolved around drinking. And it took me a while to realize I couldn't drink that much. Yeah. I feel like I was a superhero in college, like with the amount I drink and the fact that I even made it to class and like (laughs) continued to drink the next day. It's yeah, it's wild. Did you have the same experience? And like, what, what advice, if any, would you give to college students as they're leaving college and like trying to figure that out? Yeah. Yeah. So I went to a partying school for sure. Um, And it was why for me, I was able to really justify, I think that I didn't have a problem because I was like, well, all my friends drink this way. Everyone else is doing this. So I don't have a problem. I mean, looking back, it's very clear. Not everyone had the consequences that I had. I was like very much a blackout drinker. So um, when I drank I and got drunk, I would blackout. So I would do things that were totally out of character for myself and had a lot more consequences as a result. But I think that's really common. And it's why I don't love just the black and white term of like you're an alcoholic or you're not. Where I created in my book, I talk about the term disordered drinking. And I think it really allows us to look at it from a more nuanced place. And we can say that, you know, the traditional way is you're an alcoholic or you're not. And if you're an alcoholic, you always will be. You can never drink. And if you're not an alcoholic, you can drink as much as you want and you never have to worry about it. Where I think if we look at it as we can go through periods of time in our life where we have disordered drinking. It allows us to, you know, because when I created the book, essentially I was I was looking at studies of just the millions of people we were leaving out of the conversation. You know, we only talked to people until recently who have issues with alcohol, who have severe issues with alcohol, but millions of people don't meet criteria for having an alcohol use disorder, but it still impacts their lives and they deserve to be able to explore it and talk about it as well. So that's where I think if we can recognize that most college kids who party like that are going through a phase of disordered drinking, 
it can help give some language to it. But to answer your question about, I think it's really, really hard. I have so much compassion. I don't think I would be able to have stopped drinking when I was in college because I think that it is so baked into the culture of a lot of college campuses. I think you can try to moderate like I was talking about. I mean, I think you know, when I was in college, there weren't really mocktails or things like that, where I think if you want to moderate, people don't know a lot of times what you're drinking in like a red solo cup and you could drink something else. Um, But there's a lot of pressure like, like you were talking about. So I think my advice to people also who are graduating is, you know, to try not to, to try to remember that that's not real life. That's not the way that you should kind of go into post-grad life. And it's okay to have gone through a period where you were drinking a lot, but it's also okay to change and to not have that work for you. And like, cause it doesn't feel good for most of us. For sure. So as I was saying earlier in regards to my own drinking and being sober curious, but not struggling with every aspect of alcohol, AA obviously doesn't seem like the necessary fit for me. What initial steps would you take to find out if sobriety is the right choice for you versus drinking in moderation? That's a really great question. And I think it's something that's really relevant to a lot of people. I would start with taking a break similar to what you did and really giving yourself because I think one of the things that people one of the mistakes people make is they don't take a break from drinking at all. They just want to moderate. And while that is better than not moderating, it also, though, doesn't give you a frame of reference to see how good you could feel without alcohol, right? If you're still, if you're moderating, but you're still drinking a few times a week or drinking, you know, one glass of wine every day, you're not going to feel the positive benefits a lot of times of the sleep, you know, your sleep being better, your mental health being better, just physically having more energy, you know, clearer skin, all of these types of things, just when you're just moderating. So I would say start with a 30 day break that gives you a little bit of like enough time for your body to kind of adjust and come back to homeostasis. And I think doing what you're doing, Merit, is if you feel good, keep doing that until there is a reason for you that where you're like, this feels worth it. And it feels like I really want to drink. And then you can kind of, I think, like experiment and see, like maybe you have an event coming up, you know, where you, they have the best margaritas that you've ever had, or you're going to a restaurant with a friend and you're just like, I would really love to have a margarita, create a plan of, okay, well, I'm going to go out with my friend and I'm going to have a margarita and I'm going to see how I feel. And I'm going to be really curious and pay attention to how I feel physically, mentally, you know, that night and the day after, and then you can get to decide, is it worth it? Is it not? Sometimes it might be worth it for you. Sometimes it might not. For some people, what I can say, the reason that I recommend not everyone moderate is for some people, it is so much decision fatigue having to decide every time when they're going to drink, how much they're going to drink, what they're going to drink, when they're going to stop, whether they will be able to stop. And it becomes not, it's so exhausting for them to try to figure all that out, that it's better for them to just not drink because it saves them so much energy. Interesting. Is that like an for anxious people specifically? I'm not somebody who has like generalized anxiety or anything, so I can't relate to that at all. Um, Often it is someone who is more anxious, who has mental health issues, who tends to overthink things. 
For sure. And also like, you know, depending on if the longer you've been drinking, the, the more history you have of disorder drinking, it will be harder for you to moderate as well. If you have trauma, it's going to be more difficult for you to moderate things like that. Right. And you mentioned 30 days. So what are your thoughts on dry January? Do you feel like a reset like that can actually be helpful for people? I know you said 30 days is great, but in terms of it being specifically dry January or any other time of year, what are your thoughts? I I love the concept of dry January and I don't love when people treat it like I think you have to do it correctly. I think a lot of people treat it like a diet where they're just like resetting and they're almost like white knuckling it to prove to themselves that they don't have a problem with drinking. And then they go right back, you know, February 1st. They can't wait. That I don't think is helpful. That's not going to really do much for your relationship with alcohol. If you do it mindfully, though, where you're curious, where you notice how you're feeling, where you maybe like journal and and get insights. I think that's really helpful. But I think you have to have the right mindset going into it. Gotcha. So a couple of kind of more serious questions. I do have listener questions after this. Hopefully you have some time for those good ones in there. But if someone has a friend or family member who they suspect is an alcoholic or has very disordered drinking and they want to offer support, how would you suggest they go about that without like triggering that person or, you know, causing a rift or something like that? Yeah. Well, I think you have to remember that that person's journey is their journey and you may not be able to help them. But I think the best way to try to help is to say, look, like, I love you. I support you. I'm here for you. I've noticed that it it seems like sometimes, you know, you have a problem with drinking. Maybe don't say you have a problem with drinking because starting out with a you statement can feel can make people defensive. Um, But I think if there's something that's happened that's made you concerned, right? Like I've noticed you've been missing work or I've noticed that you, you know, I miss being present with you, you know, something that's kind of like a tangible thing that's impacted your relationship or made you concerned and saying, I don't know what's going on, but I just wanted to tell you that I'm here for you and I'm worried about you. Is there anything that I can do to help? And just coming at it from care and concern rather than tough love or accusation or anything like that, because you don't want to trigger them to become defensive or hide their drinking around you. Obviously, it depends on what's going on. And if they're more, you know, the more severe the person's drinking, you may need to, especially if it's like a family member or your significant other, you may need to get support from like you may need to set boundaries or have consequences because it like starts to impact your life. But I think if it's just a friend or someone close to you, really just starting from care and concern and and sharing, you know, how it, what you see. For sure. And then I know sober people have different preferences when it comes to others drinking around them. Some are cool with it. Some are not. Say you're at dinner and you notice everyone around you isn't drinking because you're there. What mm. if, if you don't care that people are drinking, what do you say to let them know you're cool with them having a couple glasses of wine or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think... Sometimes in the moment, it's hard to do because I think people aren't, you know, if people are, if you're all at the dinner table and no one's drinking, I mean, I think you can say like, I just want, you know, I don't know if you guys aren't drinking because of me, but I don't care whether you guys drink, feel free to have whatever you want. A lot of times I find when people have like, you know, the the meal has started or it's in between, people are less likely to take you up on your suggestion or your 
So sometimes it might look like maybe the next time you see some of them saying like, just so you know, I don't care whether you drink around me. It's totally fine with me to give them that permission beforehand can be um, a little bit more effective than in the middle of, of dinner or something like that. And then on the opposite side, you're at dinner and everyone at the table is wasted. And that's obviously not something I would feel like sober people love. (laughs) (laughs) You ask them to be more mindful of their drinking around you, but without being a buzzkill and like sounding judgy or preachy. Yeah. So I think this is pretty similar. Like if someone's already drunk, I don't think that's a good time to have like a conversation with them or set a boundary with them because they might not remember or they're going to feel defensive because they can't take their drinking that they've already done back. You know, they can't walk it back. But that's where I think just saying, hey, like, and you can be honest about how it impacts you. You know, it. I'm trying to stop drinking or I don't drink. It would be really helpful for me if you didn't drink around me or maybe there's certain times of year, right, where it's more triggering. Like maybe it's more triggering for you around the holidays or um, when you're with your spouse and, you know, maybe your spouse drinks and you don't and having a date night is triggering when your spouse is drunk. Um, That's where I kind of talk about in my book a little bit like boundary negotiation and how it's, it's more complicated, obviously, when you share a house with someone, right? And you can't just say like, my boundary is no alcohol is allowed in the house because it's their house too. So you may have to figure out that middle ground. So I recommend people come up with like, what are the non-negotiables for them? And it might be in early sobriety and non-negotiable is that drinking like or alcohol can't be in the house. But maybe it's fine if your significant other drinks outside of the house. Or maybe, you know, it's fine if they um, keep certain alcohol in the house because you don't like certain alcohol, things like that, and trying to come up with a way. I mean, hopefully, if you have a drinking problem and your significant other is supportive of it, that they're going to want to do whatever they can to help you. But that's where it is a little more complicated with like sober curious folks or people that are just kind of exploring this. Try to come up with what's most important to you and then um, focusing on that and then seeing what your significant other or friend or roommate or whatever, what they're, what's most important to them and trying to find a middle ground. I love that. So moving on to a couple of listener questions, we've got a wide variety here. I'm going to kind of bounce around depending on yeah. how the patient goes, but this one is particularly interesting to me as I'm kind of experimenting with being sober. This actually happened to me. This is the question I'm going to ask is a listener <laughs> question, but I actually have a story related to this. So the question is, why do some people who drink have such an issue with people who don't drink? And like I went to the rodeo in Fort Worth like a month ago. And while I was there, my friends were ordering a beer. And, you know, there there are people, vendors around the stands that are selling beer and all that stuff. And I just wanted a water. And the guy selling it like mm-hmm. called me out not once but twice when he came back around being like, we don't just drink water here. And I was like, I'm so, what if I don't <laughs> deserve this? Like why? And I know he's trying to sell product and that's like a very specific example, but like, it's just a very clear example of being sober is not acceptable. So mm-hmm. why do some people who drink have such an issue with people who don't drink? I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one, if it's like not a vendor and it's like a friend or someone else, I think a lot of times it's because they want other people to 
drink with them and they want that camaraderie of like, we're all getting drunk together. We're all doing this. Sometimes it's also because like they have an unhealthy relationship with drinking and they want other people to drink the same way that they do to kind of justify it to themselves. And I think the other one is like, there's unfortunately still stigma because there's stigma against people, right? Who are alcoholics and don't drink. We have a very, we kind of say that there's only one acceptable reason to not drink. And it's that you are an alcoholic. And every other reason is just like, you're a buzzkill, you're boring, you are a wet blanket, you know, all of these other terms. And it's really sad because it's like, if people admit sometimes, or if people say they're not drinking or say they just want a water, you either have to choose between your people think you're an alcoholic or you're boring. And there isn't a wider spectrum of just like, maybe you want a water or something else instead of a beer. Or you don't want to drink tonight. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe I'll want to drink next weekend, but maybe I don't tonight. Can't that be okay? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It's like, there's just such a huge drinking culture and in this country and, and obviously other countries too, where it, it isn't acceptable a lot of times because we have this idea of what having fun is. And unfortunately, you know, if you look at the media, right, like having we're taught from a young age, having fun means drinking, being an adult means drinking, you know, dealing with your emotions or being stressed means drinking. It's once you see it, you can't like unsee it. Yeah. So I'm single and dating is already annoying and stressful (laughs) enough. Yeah. And adding the layer of anxiety with how someone's going to respond to you not drinking on a date or whatever. How do you share that you're sober or sober curious when you're newly dating? Yes. I think that's a really big challenge as well, because people right with online dating, especially there's so many options, right? There's too many choices almost that you can just get really, really picky and swipe through everyone. I mean, what I would say is I think it depends on, you know, for someone like you, Merit, since you're sober curious and you're not sober, I don't think it's something that you necessarily need to say before you date and you go on a date with someone where someone who is sober and that's like really important to them. and it's part of who they are, it's probably helpful for them to share first. I think that thinking about some of the positives of dating sober. So people are more likely to go on more interesting dates when they're sober. You know, you can break out of sometimes it can get really boring just going to go get a drink with someone where I think if you wanted to suggest like, let's go for a walk, let's go get ice cream, let's go bowling. (laughs) Yeah, bowling. Let's go axe throwing. I don't know, something like that, right? So I think trying to use it as a way to do something different or fun. And then that also, then it's easier, right? If you're going bowling to while your date may have a drink and there may be alcohol served there, it's not like the whole date is going to be derailed if you get a Diet Coke instead of a beer while you're bowling or something like that. Not the focus of the date. Exactly. And and that's where I think saying something like, look, I'm just like reevaluating my relationship with alcohol or... I'm taking a break from drinking right now, or I did dry January and I've been feeling so great. I've been kind of, you know, I haven't been drinking that much since then saying something like that, where it's not super intense, but it'll also, while, while it's scary because right, like you may be on a date and it derails the date by saying that. I also think that it really shows people who they are. If like, it can also help you weed out people who, if someone has a problem with you, exploring your relationship with alcohol, they're not someone you want to be that with. you actually want to be with. Absolutely. And that was that was 
at the end of your book, I think when you're talking about not giving excuses and just putting it out on the table and it doesn't have to be some scary thing. It could just be like, I'm just not drinking tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it's like the other really big benefit to dating sober is you don't have, like, you'll know walking out of that date, whether you actually have like a spark and a connection with that person. And you don't have to like, so often I think people date and they don't know whether they got drunk and had a fun time or whether it was like the alcohol that made the date or whether they actually, you know, hit it off with this person. And it really helps to date without that cloud. (laughs) So true, because I'm a pretty outgoing person. I'm very chatty by nature, but I definitely ramp it up when I'm drinking. Like I'm Mm -hmm. like anxious energy at the end of a date. If I've had a few drinks and I'm talking a lot, I'll realize that they weren't actually like I asked them all the questions. They don't really get a chance to ask me because I'm like kind of dominating and steering the conversation just because of that. Yeah. So that is a good point. So on the next date, maybe don't don't drink and let them steer the show a little bit. Yeah. So I think you can get to know them and so that you can see whether they like can keep up with you too. Because I think like sometimes people go on dates and they think they had so much fun and then they like realize without alcohol, that person is not interesting or you, you know, isn't capable of holding a conversation. Okay. So this next question is a little longer. So somebody writes, after failing in previous years, I successfully completed dry January this year and loved the experience. In fact, it's halfway through February and I still haven't had a drink. I feel amazing. However, I don't want to give up drinking completely as I enjoy socializing with friends and family over a couple of drinks. Any tips on how to reintroduce alcohol back into my life? While I have self-control, I also worry I'll look up years from now and my consumption will have creeped back up again. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think for this uh, person who wrote in this listener, I think they could take a similar approach to kind of what I was saying about waiting or something that feels really, really worth it to them. The other approach, if they want to kind of face it earlier or something like that and learn, like you can kind of create an experiment for yourself where you decide, you know, I'm going to drink, I'm going to have this one drink tonight and I'm going to sip it really slowly. And I'm going to observe myself through this whole kind of process. I'm going to notice, you know, I would grab a journal. I would think about how do you feel before you drink? How do you feel after you take the first few sips halfway through, you know, three quarters of the way through at the end? How do you feel an hour later? And just be really, really curious about what happens to your emotions and, you know, your whole experience through the whole thing. And then really feeling like, Was that worth it? Was it what you expected? Did it give you what you wanted? Because really like the curiosity is what's going to help someone or what, you know, they were talking about with being worried about it creeping back up. I think being really intentional before you go out with someone, how many drinks are you going to let yourself have sticking to that? If it's not working, going back to the drawing board, being like, okay, I said I was going to only have three drinks. Three drinks is too many for me. I can't moderate past that point. I get drunk, you know, at three drinks. So maybe you need to cut it down to two. Maybe uh, it's much easier for you to moderate wine compared to, you know, hard alcohol. Really treating it like an experiment and um, getting really curious about the different, you know, pieces of that. And this is probably a good place to plug your workbook. I haven't (laughs) had a chance to go through it, but I listened to the audiobook. So it was like... 
me the different exercises. Oh, I'll send you a copy, Merit, so you oh, can see it. all the exercises. Very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Is that something that you would recommend for people who are sober curious and figuring out whether their moderation is a good idea or actually cutting it out? Yes. I actually have like, like half of the workbook is like worksheets that you can fill out and like do yourself. And I have a whole um, exercise, like a whole set of worksheets on exactly how to do that exercise that I just kind of verbally went through. Love that. Okay. So everybody check that out on Amazon. (laughs) Bye there. Yeah. Um, Same name, not drinking tonight, just the workbook. (laughs) Um, Okay. And then a couple of other questions. What is the science behind black and brown outs? They're so Mm. Yeah. So the hard part about the science, so the hard part, right, is that it's different for everyone. Everyone's point of reference of blacking out or when they black out is different and also depends on how much food you've eaten, what your weight is, what your tolerance is. But the other scary thing about blacking out is that once you black out, you are more likely to continue to black out again because it becomes just like a neuro pathway in your brain for lack of a better term, it becomes just like a habit in your brain that it goes towards. So that's the really scary thing about blacking out. But it happens because right when you drink normally, your prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of your brain that's responsible for making decisions, thinking about the future, weighing options kind of goes offline. But what happens is it's not just that part of your brain that goes offline when you black out. It's like your whole, right? Like your whole consciousness goes offline too. And that's what's scary is you're, you're not so there's different levels of your brain being sedated. And it's before obviously your breathing shuts down or things like that. But it's it's between, you know, your prefrontal cortex being there. And I mean, it's why blacking out is scary because you can drink so much that you, you know, have alcohol poisoning and your respiratory system and those automatic parts of your body that keep you alive shut down. That's the scariest part. I yeah. haven't thought about that. I mean, I've certainly had times where I've woken up and been like, how did I get home last night? Like that's, that's really the extent of my blacking out. That's still really scary. Cause (laughs) how did I get home? Yeah. What do you think about drinking alone? So for example, somebody might like to have a glass of wine with dinner at home. I don't love it because I think that it can just be a slippery slope where it can become more and there's less like social cues to start and stop, especially I think if you're drinking alone to deal. I mean, like one of my kind of not rules, but recommendations for people, if you want to moderate your drinking is to not use alcohol to deal with your emotions because it's not effective. It's also just, it's harder to stop and start when you're drinking to deal with something specifically. You know, I think at its best moderating alcohol, it should be because you still drink because you enjoy the taste of certain things because you're out because it'll elevate a certain experience where I find people who drink alone at home, it may be elevating an experience, but it's probably elevating like the lonely, right? It's taking away maybe the loneliness of of being by yourself or the stress of your kids have gone to bed and you're trying to deal with, you know, the stress of the day. And you're also having those negative effects that you were saying earlier that you're not even thinking about like the sleep and stuff. So yes, unless it's like a celebratory thing or an anniversary or something that like you're really excited to have a nice glass of wine, it's not something you want to be doing every night. Yes. And I think people really underestimate that even just one glass of wine a night 
it, it adds up and it does have impacts on your mental and physical health for sure. This is, this was an interesting question. What are your thoughts on replacing alcohol with something like marijuana mushrooms, kava, which I don't know what kava is. I don't know what kava is either. I'm not up to date with it. <laughs> um, in general, I'm not a fan of replacing one addiction with another. I can say that the hard part about marijuana is there is not as much research on marijuana as um, alcohol. So we don't know quite as much about the effects of it. It just hasn't been studied as much. We we actually don't understand totally like the neuropathways that are involved in the process of getting high. That being said, if you are someone who doesn't have a problem with alcohol and you have less you know, side effects of smoking when you're like, you know, going out with someone or hanging out with someone than drinking. I think that that you have a right to say like, Hey, I have way less side effects, you know, when I smoke compared to when I drink. So I'm not like against marijuana or things like that. But I think if you're coming into it being like, I'm going to replace this with something else that tells me that there's something else going on underneath that needs to be addressed. And if you don't look at you know, if you never learn how to, like I was saying, set boundaries, deal with your emotions, face what's happening, why you're seeking something external, you're likely to just end up abusing something else. Totally. And for everyone listening, she really dives into the boundary setting and all of that in her book. So definitely be sure to read Not Drinking Tonight. Okay, I have one more listener question. What are the best ways to handle celebrating? For example, friends asking to grab a drink, toast at dinners, weddings, parties, that kind of thing. Obviously, a lot of those things revolve around alcohol. And I think we're just kind of used to that. It's uh, the association is always. Yeah. So how to kind of separate those from that? Yeah, I think one. I mean, obviously, if you're like at a wedding and there is, you know, a champagne glass in in front of you, it's not like. The solution, right, is either to not drink the champagne glass or sell like toast with something else, which you could definitely do. But I think also like looking beyond if you're creating the celebration, if you're going, if you're celebrating an anniversary with your spouse or, you know, getting a job promotion or something like what else do you like to do? That would be fun. I think that we're just so in the default of just like we go get drinks when we celebrate someone and you may not have control over if you're invited to drinks with your friend. And that may be where you need to order a mocktail or substitute something. But if you have control over it, I think really asking yourself, like, what would be fun for me? Do I want to like go on a, you know, trip or do I want to go get ice cream or do I want to, you know, I don't know, go to brunch or go to a yoga class or go do something. I don't know. Go get a tattoo. I don't know. (laughs) like deciding what would be fun for you. What's a way you genuinely want to celebrate and expanding your idea beyond just like drinking is the only way to celebrate. I think there's hundreds of ways to celebrate depending on the person and what they like to do. I love that. I think that's a great, great question to end on. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really love chatting with you and hearing more about your philosophy. I mean, this has been impactful for me as somebody who's definitely sober curious and kind of continuing on my journey. So thank you so much. I'd love for you to share how people can find you, where they can find your book, all of that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at therapy for women. My books are not drinking tonight, a guide to creating a sober life you love. That's the self-help book. And then I just came out with a workbook that's called not drinking tonight, the workbook. It says it's a clinician's guide, but it really is a guide for everyone. I just more 
specifically had to pick a target demographic and that's what we picked. They're available on Amazon, you know, everywhere books are sold. And you can learn more about me at my website, amandaewhite.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed our chat. Absolutely. Me too. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving Beck and Call a five-star rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Beck and Call Podcast and follow me at Merit Beck for more fashion, travel, and lifestyle content. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.